I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Schiavocampo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. Today on Run Tell This, Wes on his big GQ interview with Will Smith, what Will told him about his marriage to Jada Pinkett Smith and whether or not they are monogamous. Plus, Miami Herald Caribbean correspondent Jacqueline Charles joins us to break down the crisis in Haiti and how thousands of migrants ended up at our border. And it's our anniversary. We celebrate one year of Run Tell This. Wesley, here's what I love about you. You move in silence like lasagna, right? We'll have a conversation and I'll be like, hey, what's going on? And you're like, oh yeah, you know, a little of this, a little that. And then you drop like this article with Will Smith talking about his non-monogamous relationship with Jada Pinkett. And it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> you didn't mention that. <laughs> Can you tell us about this, this GQ story? Yeah, no, so this was, a, this, was a, this was a fun one. I've been working on it for a little bit um, for, the, for next month's GQ cover. Um, Will has his memoir coming out in November. Um, and a, a few did you other write guys. that too? <laughs> I, I did not write that, no. Um, but, Slacker. <laughs> but he's got his book coming out. And so I read an early copy of it. And then him and I sat down and we had, um, you know, several hours of conversations about different things. You know, I think for him, a big part of it was twofold. The big themes of his memoir were um, his childhood. Um, he reveals for the first time that his father uh, was abusive of his mother in their house and how, he's, and how he sees that as one of the defining experiences of his life and how he responded to that. Uh, but secondarily, how he had kind of been on this single-minded pursuit of a certain type of success for most of his career. And what he would say is kind of breaking free of that now in, in a later adulthood. Um, and so we talked about all that kind of stuff. We got into it. Um, but the book, in a lot of ways, it lays some of the groundwork for some of the things that we've seen play out in public, right? We know that Will and Jada um, have talked about uh, their marriage not being kind of fully monogamous. There were periods where they were off or kind of what was going on there. And there's always like a little more unsaid than there is said. And there was um, this entire kind of red table talk about entanglements and, and another relationship she had had. And so it was interesting because in the book, as I read it, right, Will begins trying to give in some ways, kind of the backstory, right? He's alluding to all of these moments or fights that they've had or compromises that they've made, right? He notes that Jada didn't want a traditional wedding in the first place, that she was always kind of questioning traditional marriage. He more or less bullied her into it because that's what he wanted. Um, things like um, the compound they live in out in California, she like, adamantly did not want, and he just bought it anyway. And, and so in and, and times where she sacrificed professionally. And so he lays out all of these things that are kind of some of the backstory, trying to help explain how things got to where they've been publicly. Um, but then he kind of stops. And so a big part of our interview was me asking him, pushing him a little bit. Okay, so what is the deal? What is going on? What were the lessons? And then also, how did you navigate this? in terms of how do you two navigate this in terms of your personal private relationship versus what you share in the public, right? Because even as a quote unquote more transparent couple, we both know, you know, we, we don't want our text messages being published in real time or the, you know, we don't want a camera with us while we're having a conversation with the person we're the closest with, the most intimate with. And so we talked a lot about that, right? What they share, what they don't and how they navigate all of that. And um, as it turned out, a lot of what he said seemed to kind of break the internet the last week or so. 
Well, it's, it's led to a conversation that I think, especially in the black community, people don't have very often about non-monogamous marriage, um, which is, I think, a lot more common than people, not to say it's common, I still don't think it's common, but I think it's more common than people are aware of because most couples who have that arrangement don't talk about it because it's not socially acceptable. So it's very much this kind of closed off group. So I think having him having that conversation with you has opened the door to a lot of people now having that conversation. I actually think that it's not so much that people don't have that conversation because it's not socially acceptable. I just think that it may be that people don't have that conversation because it's intensely private, right? I mean, the difference between Will Smith and anybody and any, you know, quote unquote, regular person who's in a non-monogamous relationship is that Will Smith and Jada Pinkett are Will Smith and Jada Pinkett. And that you expect a certain amount of transparency and, you know, public disclosure from celebrities because you feel like you've been led into all of these different parts of their lives. And so like for years and years and years before they ever acknowledged it, before there was ever a red table talk, before Wes did this interview and before Will wrote a book, people had always talked about, you know, Will Smith, Will and Jada have this open relationship. And I'm like, how the hell do you know? You don't like, you don't know them. Yeah, but the <laughs> rumors turned out, the rumors turned out to have some truth in them. Correct. The rumors did turn out to be true. But I guess the, the point that I'm that I'm making is that you don't you you knew this and you felt like you had a window into what was going on in their world because they're celebrities and because their lives are lived in the public arena, not necessarily because people are afraid to talk about. And I think there's some of that there, too. I think that people just in general aren't really usually all that forthcoming and honest about what happens in their in their relationships and, and in their bedrooms and for good reason everybody don't need to know who you get down with and, and how many people and what you do and what you do yeah um, but with but black people is, it's also you're gonna get hit over the head with the bible and it like it's deeper than that like people don't want to talk about it because it's just so frowned upon that's fair i mean i i, I take that i i certainly accept it i don't think that it's nece- that that's necessarily all that there is but i think that i think that's right so then, Wes, did he clarify, like, are they non-monogamous now? Are they even together now? They seem more like friends I mean, at this point. they're married. Um, it, was, it was interesting because there was a lot of kind of negotiation around what he would say and how he would say it, right? And again, it was one of those spaces where he, when we talked, again, this wasn't just one conversation. Him and I talked and we're still texting. Like, you know, we've gone back and forth on language and questions and things and what he'll say and what he won't. And it is interesting because in a lot of cases, there, is, there are kind of the more direct the question sometimes, the less direct the response. And I get that, right? That these are two people who they've decided how they're going to navigate this in public, what they're going to say, what they're not going to say. And so there can be a little frustration. You ask these seven follow-up questions and it ends up getting back to a more like... Um, <laughs> yeah, correct, right? And not a like, wait, but yes or no, though. What's the... You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a my impression, right? Like... You know, and so the way I think about it or the way what, what I kind of took away, right, was, you know, he said to me at one point, he goes, you know, we're people who are partners who've been married, who for the vast majority of our relationship decided to be monogamous, but then at a point decided not to be, um, and that our marriage can't be a prison that we're trapped in, that we have to love each other in this way, in the space that is different. Um, I think it is, uh, it, it seems to me that, that partnership is certainly still there. There's still a married couple who are navigating things together. Um, but what's actually going on, if, if today either of them is seeing someone else or what exactly they're allowed to do today versus what it was a week ago, 
I don't really know the answer. So he didn't say whether or not he has a girlfriend or is seeing someone else? Not, not, uh, no, not in anything, um, not anything that is as of today, right? He made clear, you know, because one thing that was interesting is he was, you know, in our conversation, he was very defensive of Jada because he felt like she got a lot of blowback from their Red Table Talk conversation initially. Um, when they came out and there's disclosure of, you know, the quote unquote entanglement with Alex Alcina. And he, and he was basically like, look, I just think a lot of people frame that as like Jada was having an affair or she had done this thing. And he was basically just like, that ain't, that's not how that went down. Right. Like he, he was more or less, you know, winking a nod. Like I was out here, I was living life. People should not be mad at Jada for whatever this little thing was. Like I was fully enjoying my life, and and he felt kind of, um, you know, there was some frustration. I quoted him in the piece where he was saying, you know, that once some of these narratives set in, they become impenetrable, right? And so he felt, he said that he felt very much kind of frustrated that so much of this conversation had been about had been framed in this way did jada step outside of their marriage or x y and z and he was basically just like no matter what she did that's not an accurate framing to understand what was going on and what happened um and that frankly that was not even a particularly notable uh occurrence in their timeline right the impression i got was that whatever was the difficulty or the things they had to talk about between them that that scenario was not one that particularly mattered it's just the one that we happen to know about so so with that with that said why did that in, in his opinion why did that seem to loom so large because it seems what you're saying is that within the context of of them in their relationship it was sort of a blip whatever whatever the thing was was more a blip than it was a that you know that it was a, a a gulf right it wasn't it was a, a tremor and not an earthquake but to the rest of the world it felt what it felt like was Jada needed to come to the red table and put her all her shit on it for some reason that she needed to get this whole thing out, which made it feel because of the way it was presented, made it feel like it was a huge thing, both publicly and in the context of their marriage. Well, I think that I think uh, and, and again, some of this is supposition, right? It's not like I'm like dropping new tidbits that Will secretly told me that, you know, but but. But having spent a lot of time thinking about these very specific things of late, right? You know, my impression is that um, a few things. First, as I think both Mara and Keithy both alluded to, there have been kind of public conversations and murmurs about the Smiths for a long time, right? Is their relationship open? Are they doing, you know, what are they doing? What are they up to, right? And so anytime something uh, becomes a like, tangible anecdote of a thing that people already believed to be true. People invest a lot into that. Um, and so it was this thing you could finally like point to like, oh, see, I told you like we've always known or X, Y, and Z, right? So I think people, I think there was a lot of investment in that. But second, I also think we have to remember how that August Alcina stuff played out initially. He was the one who disclosed it. Um, I want to say in like a breakfast club interview or even yeah, it was with, the, with Angela Yee. Yes. And, and the way he had framed it, was I was dating Jada and I had Will's permission and like we had a conversation about it and X, Y, and Z and blah, blah, blah. And so the like tabloid headline around it was like, Will Smith gives his blessing for this like younger man to date his wife. And it was like, there was like a lot of weird. And, and so I think for them, 
if when you rewatch that red table, a big part, I mean, that, like, those types of details are the things they're kind of harped on at the beginning where they're like, to be clear, like, Will didn't have to grant his permission because he can't grant permission for Jada to date someone or not. This is her own life. You know, like, where they, I think they felt the need to like walk through that in a way. Um, it, because it felt kind of weird and reputational for both of them. Um, and I think, but again, I think as Will very much said to me, part of it is like, you can, I think I wrote it in the piece, right? They, they just wanted, they wanted to like clear the air and settle this and like all it did in some ways was dig the hole a little deeper, right? It didn't actually clear a bunch of stuff up. It made people think all types of additional things one way or the other. Um, you know, again, a lot of the framing around this remains even as they've talked about it remains you know did jada have an affair or was she unfaithful like x y and z even though in that red table talk they explicitly say we were broken up at the time and we weren't even you know and so there is like a lot of messiness and complication and again we can understand we've all been in relationships there are plenty of <laughs> in relationships that are up or down or weird or well exactly at 11 p.m on that tuesday in the midst of it were y'all together or not <laughs> Well, I don't know what what exactly was which day was that again? First, first, first of all, I've never had any experience like that. To be clear, I am right. Don't you know what you you don't don't you start? <laughs> what kind of threat is that? Don't you start to begin with? What is moving right along? What is the West? So even in this conversation, we've spent the the majority of this conversation about your interview with Will Smith and his memoir talking about his relationship with Jada and are they or aren't they and whatever, what, what, what they're doing. What is the thing that you, that you get a sense that he wanted to talk about in his memoir? He wanted to be the takeaway from his memoir that doesn't have anything to do with their relationship and whether or not it's open. Cause I imagine he didn't write this book because he wanted to explain what was happening in, in their marriage in, in long form. That's such a good question, but that's what everyone wants to know about. Of course, I I think a big part, my impression, right, is a few things. I think Will was ready or willing to talk about the stuff with his father and Parkas's father's past. And so that, so I feel it was like a chapter closed for him or he was willing or able or, or wanted to kind of, it, it seems like he had done this work to think about how did this shape me and what, and, and he was ready to kind of talk about that work that he'd done. But I think secondarily, I think for him, you know, the impression I got reading the book and then in our conversations is that he does feel very, um, that he feels in some ways like he had, that he doesn't have to chase in the same way anymore. Um, and look, I think anyone who says that is like half lying right now. Like I'm, um, I'm satisfied now and I'm not in it for the hunt. And it's like, and meanwhile, he's filming seven movies and doing this and employing a whole staff to do his social so he can be the biggest, you know, but there is something to be said about, I, I think, for him and in telling the story of his own life, you know, he is no longer a young man. He's no longer a young upstart. He is someone- How old is he now? 53. Um, and so he is, and what I would say is, one of the ways I think about it is, he has accomplished a set of things that basically no matter what he continues to accomplish will, will be the first lines of his obituary. He is the biggest movie star of his era. He has done, like in many ways, he has reached his peak of Everest. Now he can go back and do it one or two more times, right? But it's not, it's, what he is going to be known for is in many ways kind of fundamentally established and set in stone. 
And I think because of that, like having achieved and accomplished that, I think for him, a lot of it is, you know, he's kind of, he would say, is in this space and in this moment where he can um, be a little more introspective, do more work on himself. So he writes a lot about how he, you know, he did, you know, this kind of years of trying to kind of find himself and figure himself out and be happy on his own and not have to be so people pleasing and not and I, and I think for him that's something he values a lot um, and he thinks he's like made a lot of progress in the last few years and so therefore wants to share those things outward as well. Mm. I do love that they have both him and Jada have expanded the conversation about the stages of marriage. You know, I think society would have you believe that marriage is happily ever after. It's like, well, you get to the altar and then the rest is happily ever after. And the conversations that they've been leading are really about chapters and stages and evolving and having open conversations and allowing their marriage to change with them as they grow in age and remaining partners and remaining friends and remaining co-parents. Today is my 16th wedding anniversary, so I can tell you there are stages, there are chapters. It's not all happily ever after. Yeah, I mean, I, just even that idea of, you know, what you need in a partner and a partnership is going to look different at different eras or different, at different chapters at different stages, right? That the same relationship between the same two people, well, those people aren't static. You know, exactly. me this year is different than me a year ago, which is going to be different than me three years from now, right? And so our needs, our wants, our desires, how things match up are going to change and they're going to shift over time. Uh, and what we need to feel fulfilled, to feel happy, to might shift, it might change. And, and, and the extent to which, and like I said, I think one of the quotes that kind of went viral from this was him talking about it. He goes, you know, we didn't want marriage for us to be a prison. We didn't want it to be a place that we were trapped in. We wanted it to be a thing, a space of love and support. And how are we there for each other? How do we support each other? How do we move through life together? but not this like hyper confining, well, no, you can't have the thing you need because we're married. And so therefore that, and that comes with X, Y, and Z. It's how do we figure out a partnership that works for the two of us? Um, which again, I think is interesting. And as you guys know, isn't a conversation that we have a lot in public necessarily, um, in part because I think people project you know, marriage, there's a public component to marriage. It's not just about the relationship. It's about what you're projecting out to your family, to your friends, to society, to the government when you sign these pieces of paper. And, and, and so at times, I think there can be a space between what's actually ideal for a set of people and versus what uh, we believe or society tells them how, what a marriage should look like. Mm. And um, where can people read the article and when is his book coming out? So the article is on the cover of next month's GQ. Um, I think it's November's GQ because we're now in October. Um, and, and so it'll be on newsstands wherever you want to find it. Um, and it's actually a global cover. So it's on the cover of every Congratulations, GQ. Congratulations, Wes. That's awesome. Oh, the, 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 hump, the, the humblest <laughs> of brags. Like, by, by the way, I mean, they didn't even do a European edition. Like, it's just me. It's all me. It's I me love all that. day, every day. And I the, mean, um, so that's <laughs> hat tip to you. Appreciate it. And then and then his book, uh, Will's book comes out in November. It's called Will. Um, cover arts by a great artist in New Orleans, uh, B. Mike. Um, he wrote it with uh, Mark Manson. Um, and he's also got some other projects coming out. I was on the, I was on set with him in New Orleans where he's shooting a movie called Emancipation. 
Um, and then he's got also in November, uh, King Richard, his book that is about, or I'm sorry, the film that's about uh, Richard Williams, um, who is Venus and Serena, plays Venus and Serena's father, which is, which is pretty, it's a pretty good film. I think people, are, they're going to do a big push around it. And I think, I think it's going to be a pretty buzzy film. I've seen it. It's pretty good. It must have been cool to be on set with him. I, I did an interview with Nia Long, and she said he was her best co-star ever, that he was just so warm and funny and made everyone better. He was, it was a lot of fun. You know, what was also true is that, you know, someone of Will Smith's caliber travels with, like, a staff of humans in a way. And right. so we were not there. <laughs> I mean, and not, like, I mean, the chef, the stylist, the, like, you know, it's a whole production of Will people, not even people from the from the film and and so it was fun actually because we, i spent a ton of time with them it was pouring rain and we're in these trailers like playing card games and stuff while we're waiting to see if the if the shoot's going to continue or not and so it was a lot of fun i hadn't spent i don't think i'd been on a movie set before it was it was a ton of fun it was a good time it was crazy to think about how they're trying to do all this stuff during covid um because i've tested and there's so many people coming and going and all this but it was a really interesting time like i said will was great he was really generous with his time um and his his staff, his folks, his people were all absolutely amazing. That's awesome. All right. Wait a minute. First of all, happy 16th anniversary to you. That was still <laughs> Thank happy, you. happy birthday to you. Thank you very much. Happy birthday to you. Your birthday just passed. But happy birthday and happy anniversary to the pod. Because oh my gosh, this that's is right. <laughs> because this is, I don't know how y'all like, how do we miss this, right? So this is technically the one year anniversary. Uh, episode of Run Tell This. Um, and I don't think anybody realized that I was actually like just ran through my social media and you know you get this alert like one year ago and right. it was <laughs> it, and it was like the press release that we had put out about the about the first the very first episode of Run Tell This and that was that was like three or four days ago or whatever it was and I texted everybody like yo did y'all realize we were doing this for a whole year and nobody realized it. So happy anniversary to us. Happy anniversary. And thank you to everybody who's been listening and to everybody who's been rocking with us. We really appreciate you listening. We hope that you like and share and subscribe and tell all your friends and tell whoever you're in an entanglement with to listen (laughs) Um, and keep rocking with us. We appreciate it. Absolutely. And thank you to everybody. All of our guests, many of them were booked in a text message most of them were booked in like one message, one email. We have had the most prominent, successful black journalists in the country on, and they showed up for us. So thank you to our guests for saying yes, for being so accessible, for coming to play. Soledad joined us at like midnight. You remember right. that episode? After debate. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was oh, man. in the middle of the night. <laughs> so, so thank you to our guests for that. We love you guys. All right, and speaking of amazing guests, we have one with us today. So very excited today uh, to be joined by Jacqueline Charles, uh, who is the longtime correspondent with the Miami Herald covering Haiti. When we first talked about booking you and getting you here with us, uh, things seemed like this was the top story in the country. It was all everyone was talking about. And as is often the case in Washington, I know from being here, uh, people stop paying attention as soon as the next thing comes up, but these stories don't actually go away. And so one of the reasons we want to talk with you is because you continue covering the story, continue to pay attention, even when the rest of us stop acting like it's a crisis um, and the only thing that matters. 
And so I guess I wanted to start by asking you, you know, currently, what is the state of play? What is going on? This is a country that's gone through so much, even in just the last year, but much less in, in, in recent history. Where are things today in terms of the various crises that Haiti has been dealing with? So, you know, you're definitely correct in terms of the story or stories and how they've been bumped out of the headline, the most recent being the earthquake in the southern peninsula. And it happened on the same week um, as Afghanistan. And so while everybody was focused on Haiti and the quake and what was going on, then Afghanistan happened. And all of a sudden, even the media, everybody's attention focused, um, turned to, to Afghanistan. And people forgot that there was this crisis, this huge natural disaster uh, in Haiti. And then soon after that, we have we, we have Del Rio. And then everybody remembers this image of the Border Patrol officer with a Haitian migrant with food in his hands. And some people were having the debate about whether or not it was a whip, it was rains, whether he was hit or not. But for African-Americans, you know, it was a stark reminder of the slave patrols. And for Haitian-Americans, it was a much more recent history in the sense of the double standard of immigration policy and the treatment of Black Haitian migrants in this country, regardless of which administration is in power. The Haitian migration issue is not just a U.S. border crisis, but it's a Latin America crisis. What do I mean? As we're speaking, about 400 Haitians are on their way being deported back to Haiti from the southeastern portion of the Bahamas after, you know, five, almost a thousand of them um, were apprehended there in the last several days. On the same day that the U.S. repatriated 509 Haitian migrants out of that Del Rio camp, 400 Haitians were in the Bahamas, in the waters after their rickety boat submerged, basically trying to make it to land, trying to make it to some sort of a better life. Uh, and many of these are people who came from the southern peninsula of Haiti that was struck by this earthquake. Many of them passed through 11 countries to get to the border, uh, a 7,000 mile dangerous, treacherous trek through the Darien Gap. Some people died along the way, women were raped. Um, it's a very dangerous journey that occurs and sometimes over months and people spend thousands of dollars their entire life savings. And you realize this when, they, when you see them and all they have is a backpack. Everything they own is in a backpack, right? Uh, so, you know, what I found in my reporting was that people really believed that the U.S. border was open when it was not. Um, when they were returned to Haiti, they couldn't understand the treatment and immigration detention. At, you know, it was cold. They were treated like criminals. But, you, you know, you illegally or irregularly cross through the United States. So you realize that there was this miscommunication or lack of information there on their part. But what you also heard from people is the desperation. And, you know, for people in Chile, for instance, Haitians in Chile, they talked about the racism. Um, they talked about the difficulty of being able to work, of not being legal in that country. And today, a lot of those people have left. When you talk to Haitians who've lived in Brazil, Brazil did welcome them. Brazil was getting ready for the World Cup, the Olympics. They said, hey, we need workers, come on down. And then Brazil started to go through its own economic crisis. So they made their way to Mexico. And not everybody wanted to come to the United States. Some people wanted to stay in Mexico, but in Mexico, they encountered both Brazil and Chile. They encountered racism. They encountered difficulty in finding work, the difficulty in being legalized. Um, and so in this 
flight of desperation, people decided to take their chance and they went across the border and they ended up under this international bridge. And we saw the images all over television. And as people started to realize that yes, they are sending people back to Haiti, according to the Department of Homeland Security, about 8,000 people left that bridge, they went across the Rio Grande and, and th now they're waiting it out. But today I can tell you that I've received confirmation that Mexico has already informed the Haitian government to start expecting at least two deportation flights a week. So what you're finding is a group of people who really don't have a place to go and they don't wanna go back to their country. And why don't they wanna go back to their country? And that's where, to answer your question, to take us to where we are now. For a lot of people, uh, there was the situation with Haiti, what they remember most recently, oh, the president was assassinated on the 7th of July. And then uh, a month later, it had this major 7.2 earthquake that killed over 2,200 people. Uh, but even before that, this was a country wrecked by gang violence. This was a country that was devastated by an earthquake 11 years ago, 2010, that partially destroyed its capital. The international community committed billions of dollars, over $10 billion of aid. I can tell you from my own research, that money never arrived. Jacqueline, if I can just interrupt on, on that point specifically, because we all remember, you know, during that time, there was such an international outpouring of support, of actual material support, of people donating money. And the Red Cross and all these other organizations were announcing the figures that they'd raised. A ton of money was raised. And by all accounts, it, very little of it has made it to where it, it should have gone. So why is that? The research that has shown that very little of this money that was raised, promised, or even given ended up in the hands of the Haitian government. Um, we've heard reports about corruption, but that's a different issue in terms of Petro Caribe. That's money that the government accessed itself from Venezuela through oil funds, and we're going to put that aside. But we're talking specifically about money that went to organizations, like you mentioned, the Red Cross and others. Um, and these were charities that came in, they hired staff, they rented houses, um, they purchased or rented vehicles. And so, yes, a lot. A lot of that money, you know, went went into that. And let's look at the numbers. 1.5 million people who were homeless, 316,000 people killed, according to the Haitian government's numbers. And you had tens of thousands, if not 100,000 homes and buildings that were completely destroyed. And initially, you know, people wanted to help the poor people. You know, we want to give housing to the poor people. And so we saw this effort where um, they were talking about transitional shelters. Can I just tell you that today that there are people who are still living in these tiny transitional shelters that never transition out into permanent homes. There are still people that are living in what used to be a tent that is basically now, um, you know, rotten pieces of, of aluminum that, you know, put up four, create four walls in, 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 a, in a rooftop and basically encampments. Uh, so, you know, the people who had documents for land or lost their houses, they didn't have access to funds in order for them to rebuild their homes. The biggest symbol for me in terms of the failure of the commitment is the general hospital. And I think, Mara, you remember you, when you've been in Haiti, you saw this so this hospital was basically destroyed um, by, you know, by the earthquake. It's the largest hospital in Haiti. It's a public hospital. And the U.S. and France said, we are going to rebuild this hospital for you. 11 years later, this hospital has not opened its doors. 11 years after this devastation, two years into a COVID, global COVID pandemic, in a country where 
you know, the death rate is so high, child mortality, infant mortality, you name it, all, is, all of the numbers are bad. This hospital still has not been completed by France and the, and, and the United States. But also there was the gang violence that basically stopped um, construction for a while um, that made it very difficult for the Spaniard firm. I visited it and I had to have a hard hat that was basically like bulletproof. I didn't even know they made such a thing, <laughs> you know? They were like purpose. <laughs> yeah, you have to be careful because you might get hit by, you know, in your head by a flying bullet while you're visiting this site. So, um, so yeah, so I think that that's a narrative that, and you know, and, and no, the Clintons did not steal the money. People like to say, people like to sort of oversimplify this. I think that you're dealing with bureaucratic, you're dealing with people were well-intentioned, but those well-intentions did not result into concrete action. I want to take a step back and get into some of the root causes of what's happening in Haiti, not just with this, this current migrant crisis, but there seems to be this mix of issue after issue after issue, tragedy after tragedy, calamity after, cal after calamity. Are there specific root causes that prevent either the aid from getting to, to Haiti or that prevent the that prevent the overall rebuilding from ever taking root. Let's go back to the genesis. This was the world's first black republic, and our own country, the United States, refused to recognize its independence. And everywhere where they were holding slaves, they were afraid that what happened in Haiti would spill over and it would destroy their slave economies. And slaves will all of a sudden want to revolt and become independent, like the slaves, you know, in Saint Domingue, you know, Haiti at the time. Then you go to the relationship with France that says, oh, okay, you, you say you, you're free? Well, you, know, you need to pay us for your freedom. Haiti spent decades making this payment. So this depleted its resources. You know, the Louisiana Purchase would not have happened had it not been for the slave revolt in, in Haiti because Napoleon needed money. <laughs> and so he, because he basically had depleted his funds to fighting slaves, you know, in, on that island. And but so- But weren't they paying re reparations to the slave owners? France, yes. France demanded reparations be paid to slave owners who lost their property um, during the whole, you know, Haitian Revolution. And so that basically put a country down. Could you imagine that in the 50s and the 60s, Haiti was actually, you know, ahead of the game in terms of tourism, and it was one of the fastest developing economies in the, in the region. Caribbean countries today talk about tourism, and tourism is such an important part of their economies, but it started in Haiti, you know, with, with, with Club Med. But then you had a dictatorship. And during the dictatorship, what we started to see was a very repressive and brutal dictatorship. And while Haitians were you fleeing, mean the Duvalier yeah, the Duvalier regime, and when they were fleeing and come to the United States, and the United States was still saying, "You're not, you know, political refugees. You're, you're immigration. <laughs> you're, you're economic refugees." So we started to see that attitude, and you know, in U.S. policy and in terms of U.S. supporting certain governments in Haiti in the name of stability or because they didn't want Haiti to become another Cuba. Um, so I think that those are decisions that we have seen consistently that have been taken and they have affected, um, you know, or led to what you're seeing today. Uh, there was the whole economic embargo, the decision that was taken by the United States, um, you know, the height of the Haitian refugee crisis and, 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 and things that has severe ramifications. You had a manufacturing um, industry that was basically crushed by, by these economic decisions that were, you know, that were taken. And here we are today, 2010 should have been a moment to change. And instead of be, being on the upside, everything seems to have gone down, downhill from there. 
So is it, so it's fair to say, based on what you just said in, the, in an answer to the question of, of what is the root cause of this, this might, it might not be the root cause of everything, but it's fair to say that, that U.S. policy, decades of it, a century of it, is largely responsible or has some significant responsibility for the lack of economic and physical infrastructure in Haiti that contributes to the problems that we see today when you see the natural disasters. Is that a, is that a fair sort of blanket statement? The U.S. occupied Haiti for 19 years, and I do not believe that the U.S. can be absent from, you know, from what has happened in Haiti today. Haitians bear responsibility as well, as well as other players in the international community. But the United States is not free from the criticism, immune from the criticism in terms of why Haiti is where it is today because of decisions that have been taken in U.S. policy toward the country. Are, they, are there any U.S. legislators, are there any members of the Congressional Black Caucus in particular who have taken up? the issue of Haiti as a public policy matter with regard to, to the United States' response, responsibility for some of the problems that Haiti has? Well, that's the conversation that is happening today, right? In terms of how much responsibility should the United States bear and what should the United States um, do about it? But let me just caution and say, Haiti is very complex, it's very nuanced. Um, and even, you know, Haitians, I think, may oversimplify. And I think that one of the biggest issues in Haiti today is that Haitians need to find a way to come together because this division that exists in the Haitian society is also not benefiting. I like to say that Haitians are still in 18, January 1802, where they have haven't identified a common enemy or vis-a-vis -a, -vis a common goal that everybody can gather around and say, we're moving forward. And I think that that division has also assisted um, in terms of either foreign policy or, or Haitians who have been you know, in charge. They, they play on that division either in the international community or among Haitians themselves. So you do have people who are trying to take up the Haitian cause, but I think that everybody involved, I think that they need to also better understand the complexities of, of Haiti. And today, let me just say, the biggest challenge in Haiti is the insecurity issue. Imagine that you're living in a country where you could be kidnapped at any moment. And when they kidnap you, the ransom are millions of dollars that are being requested. And people, especially Americans or Haitian Americans, they don't understand the FBI does, is not going to write you a check. They will help you negotiate a ransom. But, you know, this country now suffers from a proliferation of gangs um, that did not exist there 10 years ago. Um, we are seeing rampant kidnappings. And in some cases, you know, just this week, two people were killed because they were, you know, they were people were trying to kidnap them and they were fighting back and they, and, and they were killed. So, you know, how do you move forward? P patients don't want to leave their country. They want to be able to live and enjoy their country. But how do you allow that to happen? And I think that's the challenge today for the U.S. and for others. How do you provide a space, a safe space for people to live and for young people to actually dream about a future and see a future? Jacqueline, thank you so much for coming on. I feel like we could talk about this for so long. I've always been fascinated by how, you know, what I would deem punishment for uh, the slave revolt has played out throughout history and, and gotten um, Haiti to the point where it's at today. Because as you noted, every slaveholding country was terrified of becoming the next Haiti. And I think they did everything in their power to make sure that not only would that not happen on their shores, but that they were weakening that emerging country. Um, so it's such a, a nuanced uh, and layered conversation. Thank you for being here. Uh, where can people find find your work and find you on social media and in Miami Herald? Okay, great. Definitely. So you can find my work at www.miamiherald.com backslash Haiti. Um, that's for my Haiti work. And then I'm also on Twitter at Jackie Charles, J-A-C-Q-U-I-E-C-H-A-R-L-E-S. Right, thank you. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. 
Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at runtellthis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run Tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.